Hello. In November 1666, Lady Margaret Denham, a prominent member of Charles II's court and mistress to the future King James II, fell ill. She died two months later. Diarist Samuel Pepys records, I hear that my Lady Denham is exceeding sick, even to death, and that she says, and everybody else discourses, that she is poisoned. It could even, Pepys writes, have been a plot to kill the king. The poison was concealed in a cup of hot chocolate. Despite having captured the public imagination at the time, Margaret Denham's death has become an unimportant footnote in 17th century history. In this series, we explore her life and death in detail, investigating one of the most high-profile homicide cases of the Restoration. I'm Romy Nuttall, and I'm here with Sophie Shoreland to finally find out who hath done it. The murder of Margaret Denham was a huge public sensation in the late 17th century. Crowds gathered outside her house, threatening to cause a riot, and she's referenced in a huge number of poems, ballads, and surviving accounts of the time. Since then, however, her story has mostly been lost, even though she was close to the king, the royal family, and was pushing for huge political influence. I think that in some ways her story has been forgotten because she didn't fit into the role of the sympathetic victim very well. Mm. Margaret Denham was opinionated, pushy, ruthless in getting what she wanted. She was far from the sweet, innocent, young thing, sort of classic victim who sells well. She didn't hesitate in using people to get what she wanted but she was also intensely loyal to her family and a great wit. Margaret Denham used her beauty and her sexuality to secure one of the most influential positions in English public life. She wanted nothing less than to change the course of history, shaping it to her will. <laughs> yeah, she did. <laughs> yeah, she's pretty cool, actually, I think. Yeah, I'm the, very powerful. The more I get to know her, the more hard-hitting and someone who doesn't really care about fitting into a traditional feminine role. Yeah, I have respect for her ambition. Sometimes she's a bit ruthless at getting what she wanted. But we're reopening the investigation into Margaret Denham's murder over 300 years later because her story is such a fascinating one and she's so interesting, she's so ambitious and she really deserves to be listened to. Margaret Denham claimed that she'd been poisoned from November 1666, but historians have since decided that she died of natural causes. We think it's important to take her words seriously, and we're on the trail to discover who hath done it. <laughs> <laughs> Not because we think that we can bring them to justice or anything, <laughs> but in a we'll know. Yeah, and we'll, we'll have internal justice. For Margaret Denham. <laughs> exactly. And the supporting cast of suspects, lovers and acquaintances makes her case unique. We have a total of five suspects, all at the highest level of society, each with enormous political, social and economic influence. Three, really unusually, are women. And one of these was a princess. Anne Hyde, Duchess of York, <laughs> was suspected of murdering Margaret Denham because Margaret Denham was sleeping with her husband, James, the future King James II. So we're really... High levels of political intrigue here. If Hello had existed in 1666, they would have been all over this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so 
So let's put these events into context. Margaret Denham was born into a wildly unsettled and uproarious time. The year of her birth, 1642, was the same year that the Civil War started. Well, the same year that it started in England. It actually broke out in Scotland in 1639. This would have been like living at the end of times. Brother fought against brother. There were enormous casualties on both sides. They fought with pikes and cavalry, so on horses, on churned up mud. Blood and bowels were thrown in the soldiers' faces. Armies had to march on empty stomachs and valuables were stripped from still bleeding corpses. Both sides of Margaret Zenham's family were royalists, so at least they were on the same side. They wouldn't have had to deal with all this and mm. internal family politics. Yeah. <laughs> There are some really intense internal family politics and women often get involved as well in trying to like emotionally blackmail their sons into following their point of view and or just, you know. And fighting for one side or yeah, the other. Yeah. And and this isn't just like us with our families bickering over Brexit in mm. recent times. So maybe the level of passion is comparable. <laughs> but but are, with pikes. Yeah. But with pikes and pistols and mm. blood and guts. Mm. It sounds awful. Yeah. And the consequences of, of this whole conflict for Margaret's family, because they were a, a royalist family, the ultimate killing of King Charles I, which the civil wars led to, would have been anathema to them. The whole world would have seemed like it was turning upside down. And, and that was quite a commonly used metaphor at the time that the, the world had gone topsy-turvy and was mm. turning upside down. Yeah, and that people literally were living in the end times. It would have been kind of unimaginable events, really, when your society is so structured, you're sort of sure of the hierarchy, and then it's just, as you say, totally turned upside down. And Margaret Denham's life as an individual is no exception. Her life was turned upside down because when she was only a year old, so in 1643, her father, Sir William Brooke, was killed in the First Battle of Newbury. This was really a bloody slog of an engagement. It took parliamentary forces over an hour to reach the Royalist army since the clay ground was so waterlogged. So an hour to cross a field, basically. Oh, um, and imagine being the Royalist army just standing yeah. there for a whole hour while this army advances upon you. Yeah, yeah. And horses struggled through the thick mud. Soldiers were weighed down by their thick leather coats and beaten metal breastplates. It was just you know, it's obviously awful, it's traumatic. It's also just really uncomfortable <laughs> fighting this war. And yeah, tragically, her father dies very, very early on in the war. I think the Battle of Newbury was one of those battles that Prince Rupert was involved in. He was Charles I's nephew. And I think I read somewhere that he was involved in this battle and he did this initial quite good charge mm. on his line cavalry and then just, as he quite often did in these battles, just kept charging. Mm. and didn't really turn around to kind of scoop up the enemy or scoop up his troop and then they would just sort of be picked off by the enemy. I think that was one of those Prince Rupert being a bad leader. Um, <laughs> so quite brave, but not very practical. <laughs> yeah, he's actually he's actually my real early modern hottie, actually. He's, he is. He's a he, really beautiful mm, man. <laughs> yeah, go and, go and look up a picture with the flowing dark hair, He's often, you know, on a horse. He was supposed to be really brave. And he became, he became a pirate when they were exiled. It's all quite... But maybe his 
rubbish leadership at the Battle of Newbury, <laughs> or generally probably rubbish royalist leadership, because I don't think they were the best yeah, sort of generals. I think Charles I was in charge of this one personally, and he wasn't a great general. So maybe that contributed to the tragic death of Sir William Brooke, Margaret Denham's father, when she was only one year old. We should get back to her actual family as well as the surrounding context into which she was born. So her family were decently well off and connected, but the Brooke family had lost its title of Baron Cobham, which they'd had for hundreds of years, as Margaret Denham's great uncle was one of the conspirators in a plot called The Treason of the Main. And in 1603, this plot aimed to replace King James I of England and VI of Scotland, Charles's father, with his cousin, Lady Arbella Stuart. Um, so I think essentially what we can learn from this is that Baron Cobham, her great uncle, was not very intelligent and he essentially destroyed the family's position in in the first circles of power. Yeah, because prior to this incident, the Brooke family had been really well connected, really high status. Margaret Denham's great aunt and her possible namesake, Margaret Brooke, was apparently possessed by the devil. I like that in the notes I've written, was possessed by the devil. As though <laughs> it, it definitely she happened. She was definitely possessed. Full on devil possession of this ancestor. <laughs> and only Elizabeth I's own doctor could cure her. I mean, um, that is a real mark of their standing that mm. Elizabeth I's doctor was sent to try and get the exactly. devil out of exactly. this woman or heal her in some way, I mm. suppose. So there was this big disaster for the family, but then they were sort of gradually, generation by generation, trying to claw their way back to power. And this potentially a part of Margaret's kind of backstory of her life. So her father was very ambitious. He managed to get back into court circles to some extent, but he never quite made it to becoming a royal favourite and to really getting into those higher circles of power. Mm. I think that's a really interesting way of, of looking at her life. Yeah, where she comes from. I think both her parents seem to have had a real drive and a mm. real sense yeah. of ambition and like survivors in this really difficult time yeah. as well yeah her mother well um, except he died <laughs> oh yeah no he did <laughs> but i suppose there probably wasn't that much that he could do no he was that. just probably shot like <laughs> yeah died you know, from wounds. and mm. you know medical technology doesn't really bear thinking about no, let's, not uh, to, let's go on to on. the mother yeah <laughs> so penelope brooke margaret denham's mother remarried less than a year after sir william's death and this may have been because of financial necessity Parliament only granted the young widow and her four daughters, so Margaret and her three sisters, money from Sir William's estates four years later in 1647. And I, I don't know what she would have had to live on. Not very much. Time. Yeah, maybe family. But yeah, family support yeah. and money, but supporting four children. Mm. So yeah, it's no wonder that she got married again so quickly. <laughs> and it was a confused and, and difficult time right at the start of the civil wars and they stretched out until 1651. So it's kind of amazing that Parliament actually did anything in 1647. Yeah, for a royalist family, yeah. Which, again, must have been a sign of her pushiness and tenacity. Yeah. Penelope Brooke, she was certainly a strong woman. She managed to keep this very young family of four daughters together on three of her own, the eldest Pembroke Brook. Such a good name. Such a good name. I mean, that's not one that you thank your parents for. Pembroke you'd want you'd want to get married as quickly as possible, <laughs> wouldn't you? Anything else? Yeah. And then Pembroke in itself is a really I think a really cool name. It is cool. 
But Pembroke Brook is a bit gimmicky, isn't it, really? <laughs> what are you doing, guys? <laughs> but they were clearly really proud of it because she was the eldest and that's yeah. what they called <laughs> But she was, she, Pembroke Brook was Sir William's daughter from his first marriage. And I do actually like to think, because my image of Penelope Brook, Margaret's mother, is that she was a cool lady. So mm. she wasn't calling her daughter Pembroke Brook. No. That was a and, nice normal yeah. thing, like Margaret Brook. <laughs> yeah. And, and she had, you know, she looked after this child who was her husband's child. Yeah. She kept the family together. And Pembroke Brook wasn't passed off to her husband's mm. relatives or anything. And I think that's speaks volumes for her yeah and there were women at this time people like afro ben who managed to make money on their own so ben was a spy and later a playwright but this kind of independent career was much harder if women had children and the way that most women pulled themselves out of difficult situations if they were single was by marriage or some form of maybe prostitution depending on your social Mm. class and what options are available to you really there's definitely a period in history where your options are kind of better the higher in society yeah. you are. I mean, I mean has I that ever not been the case? Yeah, that's history. true. It's very true. Well, but there's also no social welfare, nothing like that. You know, things that we, to an extent, do have now. So Penelope Brooke brought all four children up as her own. She married someone called Edward Russell. He was the youngest son of the Earl of Bedford. So she was kind of marrying up in a way. The Russell family was wealthy and influential and Margaret Denham would have grown up with Edward Russell in the place of her father because he was the only father figure she could remember um, coming into her life when she was only about two. Mm. So maybe he was quite a nice man. He adopted all these daughters. Yeah, um, uh, yeah, he did adopt, adopt yeah. four daughters. Yeah. And then they had more, didn't they? Mm. He, so she had three more with Penelope. Mm. So since Margaret Denham was now part of the Russell family, as she grew up and became a great beauty, she was introduced to elite society through her stepfather, um, Edward Russell's family, probably around the age of 19. So really quite young to be on the scene. But I think that was more normal then, wasn't it? To introducing girls onto this. Yeah, into the elite. Yeah, and you didn't have debutantes. That's a later thing, but at a certain point, they're out and about in the world, they're considered adults, they're on the marriage market. And when in London, Margaret stayed at her uncle by marriage's house, the husband of Anne Russell, her stepfather's sister. Confusing enough? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So he is the Earl of Bristol, this uncle by marriage who Margaret is staying with when she's in London. He's a really interesting figure. He was handsome and charismatic if not hot-headed and unpredictable I think swirling mustachios Mm. sort of character yeah very flamboyant yeah yeah lots of lace lots of ruffles (laughs) heavily embroidered things Mm. I would think it would have been really cool hanging out with Bristol he had spent the first 11 years of his life in Spain becoming fluent in Spanish so was decidedly in the pro-Spanish camp at the court's although he had accidentally leaked Spanish military secrets to the French in 1659. So he wasn't trusted very much by either Spain or England. He's a bit <laughs> yeah. like one of those politicians who leaves a briefcase on a train. <laughs> yeah, and he really wanted political influence, but has sort of shot himself in the foot a bit with this. But anyway, a year later, a year after this awkward leaking, in 1660, Charles II had been restored to the throne of the British Isles and royalists like the Earl of Bristol had been restored to their lands and titles. They jostled for political power, they formed factions, 
Bristol closely associated himself with the tempestuous, violet-eyed Countess Castlemaine, Charles II's long-standing mistress, who amassed great power and wealth. Different powers vied for her favour by plying her with expensive gifts. And the power of the royal mistress is very important for our story and Margaret Denham's eventual death. Yes, it's very important. So Castlemaine was the first royal mistress to have this level of power and wealth in England, a structure that mimicked the French style of having a maîtresse en titre. So a principal mistress. And this figure would take on some of the duties of a wife and was openly courted by foreign powers like the French and Spanish as a route to the king's ear. So I guess if there's someone who's like an ambassador, they want to tell the king about something to make him relax these trade laws or something, they go and visit Castlemaine and mm. get her and to give put her in a, a good word. give her a beautiful diamond necklace or a fan or something. And, you know, packages were made up in Paris for her, totaling thousands of pounds at the top dressmakers and costumiers oh, and great. hatmakers. And she just has to go and say to Charles, hi, Charles, do you think you mm. could make those things a bit easier for those Spanish people? Yeah. But Charles is actually quite misogynistic and didn't approve mm. of listening to women. Oh. <laughs> so when, she must have had quite a hard job. Yeah, so, I mean, she got lots of people appointed. And if Charles already wanted something, she confirmed his opinion. But how much she actually achieved compared to how much money was spent on her mm. is sort of under question. It's an interesting one. How big was her influence? Anyway, let's get back to Margaret. But this is the kind of world that she's launched into age 19. Yeah, and it would have been a really heady time for her. So she'd grown up with much stricter rules of sexual expression under the interregnum is kind of most where most of her growing up. Her family's in exile. But when Charles II kind of comes back on the scene in 1660, there are these attitudes towards mistresses totally change, marriage, sex, it's all overturned and flirtation just blossoms massively and open affairs are celebrated. Mm, and all this is happening when she's 18. And so that, I think, really helps put it into context. As, yeah, you're having a sexual awakening yeah, yourself. And um, the country's also yeah. having a sexual awakening. I think, cool, yeah. let's get behind this. Yeah, exactly. And sexual attitudes, were they were extraordinarily liberal then, extending to public displays on the street. Mm. Apparently, Pris Fotheringham, a prostitute, stood on her head while people threw coins into her vagina. <laughs> I mean, we'd be shocked if we saw that on the street. And um, this was just happening in 1660 mm. right and Pris Fotheringham really she must have been a thing because when she became too old for these hijinks she trained young women in her techniques mm. so there's clearly a big demand <laughs> for someone standing on the head and having coins thrown in their vagina because yeah she trained up young women to the profession I'm just sort of thinking about doing that <laughs> it's like you'd have to have I feel like you would have to be pretty good at throwing I don't know does she I don't know or is she just really is she really good at opening up oh my god does has she specially trained the muscles as well or can she do really quick kind of like head handstands and <laughs> to move around, around and catch the coins <laughs> she's even more clever and genius yeah men with other tastes that didn't extend to throwing coins into someone's vagina could visit the prick office in East Smithfield which specialised in fellatio to stay safe, because we all need to stay safe, you know. Safety um, first, guys. Yeah, safety first. <laughs> <laughs> Colonel Kundum made a breakthrough with his device in 1665 
made of sheep intestine. We, you heard it started here. Yeah, the condom in 1665. <laughs> and unlike today, because it wasn't, you know, nice stretchy latex, a ribbon tied the sheep intestine onto the penis. <laughs> I just have to pause over this detail because it is so fantastic. And when we were preparing this podcast and we were talking about this detail, we decided that we had discovered the early modern cock ring. Which is the ribbon looped through the sheep intestine mm. tied onto the end of the penis. Yeah. Or imagine if you tied it too tightly. That is actually how you castrate bullocks. You tie a piece of string around their balls. So anyway, hopefully that didn't happen to anyone. Mm. I haven't read about it happening to anyone. But they became very popular, especially among the elite. John Wilmot, the Earl of Rochester, carried them around with him. <laughs> he wrote a panegyric upon condoms. So that's where, a, a panegyric is a, a praise poem. Yeah. <laughs> where he said, happy is the man who in his pocket keeps a well-made condom, nor dreads the ills of shankers or cords or bubo's dyer. <laughs> bubo's dyer being consequence of gonorrhea or syphilis, syphilis, any one of those STIs. So I think that the reason why we're, we're talking about all these things is that it's a real mark of the kind of sexual licentiousness and promiscuity that's ushered in to public life in England with the restoration. Another sign of this is that syphilis gets even more rife, condom mm. clearly not doing its job that no. well or being that widely available. But on the darker side of this relaxation of promiscuity is that some of the daughters of cavalier families who have been ruined by the Civil War became prostitutes. And they were known as the Countesses of the Exchange as they lived near the Royal Exchange. It was said of them, they master your britches and take all your riches. And royalty was profiting from the sexual freedom and from the prostitution. Charles II's brother James owned several buildings that worked as bottles. Yeah, if that happened today, it would be an absolute scandal. Total outrage, imagine. I mean, I guess we have got Prince Andrew. But yeah, but like that, that is a bit, scandal, to be fair. Yeah. This is happening and no one cares. Mm, yeah, it's just totally normal. And so this is the world Margaret Denham enters. She comes to London, staying with her quite promiscuous uncle, whose wife sort of turns a blind eye. So the elite were very, very sexually open. And Anthony Hamilton's Memoirs of Count Gremont, which is a slightly confusing book because Hamilton is writing pretending to be his brother-in-law, <laughs> the Count Gremont. But this is a really amazing source for what people were doing and thinking about at the time, because Hamilton was one of the biggest gossips of Restoration Court. He knew absolutely everyone, as well as the rumours whispered about them. And he tells us that the court was an entire scene of gallantry and amusements with all the politeness and magnificence which the inclinations of a prince naturally addicted to tenderness and pleasure could suggest. The beauties were desirous of charming, and the men endeavoured to please. All studied to set themselves off to the best advantage. Some distinguished themselves by dancing, others by show and magnificence. Some by their wit, many by their amours, but few by their constancy. I think that says it all, really. People of Margaret Denham's social class, they often had a very cynical attitude towards fidelity and marriage. Playwright at the time, William Witcherly, wrote, Marrying to increase love is like gaming to become rich. Alas, you only lose what little stock you had before. AKA, you're never going to win. It was almost unfashionable to love your spouse. Mm. 
So Margaret Denham was a young and beautiful woman living at her uncle and aunt's house, introduced to the glitterati of the court. She was at the heart of this flirtatious, highly charged sexual atmosphere where lovers groped each other publicly and women could become extremely powerful if they slept with the right man. Um, her uncle Bristol was well aware of the advantages that Margaret Denham's beauty could produce for him and his pro-Catholic, pro-Spanish faction at court. He was enduring a period of political disgrace after, well, I guess after his leaking of those documents, but <laughs> also after falsely accusing his arch-rival Edward Hyde, Lord Chancellor, and one of the most powerful men in the kingdom of high treason. Bristol had no official political power and had to rely on his social power if he wanted to make change. He therefore entertained lavishly, inviting the great and the good to his house, and he used his two attractive unmarried nieces, Margaret and Frances, later Lady Frances Whitmore, basically as bait to secure politically influential courtiers as guests. It's quite shocking, really. Yeah, although I feel they're sort of using each other in a way. Mm. She is this ambitious social climber. She was probably feeling like she was finally in her element in some ways. So when Anthony Hamilton talks about going to the house and, you know, he went to lots of these dinners and he says that Bristol knew the power of love and pleasure. Thus, he was continually giving entertainments at his house and luxury and elegance seemed to rival each other in these nocturnal feasts which always led to other enjoyments. Wink, wink. Very, very scandalous. <laughs> the two Miss Brooks, okay, Margaret and Francis, his relations were always of those parties. They were both formed by nature to excite love in others, as well as to be susceptible of it themselves. So, I don't know, from Hamilton's description, he is kind of using them as bait, but they're also seem to be really enjoying this flirtation they're young they're falling in and out of love they're kind of having a great time and it sounds like they're very charismatic as well there's a quality mm. about them more than beauty maybe that's drawing people to bristol's yeah. house yeah and i think as attractions to bristol's house they must have had to be good company to have been excellent conversationalists. Mm. And certainly Margaret Denham was a, a witty woman, skilled at banter, flirtatious repartee. And Bristol's parties were so successful that Charles II frequently dined at his house mm. and attended them. And Margaret, ever ambitious, attempted to catch the king's eye. And they apparently had a very flirtatious relationship. But unfortunately, he was too wrapped up in his violet-eyed Castlemaine, his principal mistress at the time. And Castlemaine was disinclined to countenance arrival. And she began accompanying Charles whenever he attended <laughs> the parties at Bristol's, sort of distracting him from Margaret with force. <laughs> Hamilton tells us that the king did not even dare to think any more on this subject. Yeah, I'm not quite sure what she did, but it was clearly very strong that the king doesn't dare. They had a very tempestuous relationship. Charles um, and Castlemaine. Yeah. Mm. It's really a sign of how high up the young Margaret got that the king's mistress is banning him from paying attention to her. Mm, yeah, and she's a real threat. Castlemaine successful in distracting Charles, however she ends up doing it. Margaret Denham would have to look elsewhere if she wanted to increase her power and status, which she definitely did. 
So she had no shortage of suitors. She's gorgeous. She's witty. She has every quality that the Restoration thinks is fabulous. And she quickly moved on from Charles to the next most powerful man in the kingdom, his brother James, <laughs> the Duke of York and Lord High Admiral, a really, really important position at the time. Yeah, and you've got to admire her for that sort of quick footing, I mm. think, really. Mm. It was around this time that Margaret's portrait was painted by the Dutch artist Sir Peter Lely. We know it was completed sometime between 1663 and 1665, when she would have been around 21. The portrait was part of a series known today as the Windsor Beauties. These are 11 portraits commissioned by James's wife, Anne, Duchess of York. The Yorks were Lily's most important patrons. Pepys said of the series that they were good, but not like. This is faint praise is possibly because <laughs> of the kind of sleepy eyed air that they have. Uh, Lily basically gives every woman in the series the same look and mm. kind of almost the same face mm. he flattered his subjects to flatten their features and give them the kind of conventionally attractive look of the day mm. and i think it's worth saying that the sleepy eyed <clears throat> air comes from this kind of sexually licentious look is mm. kind of prized yeah so it, women are supposed to look like they've just got out of bed you know or, or they're just beckoning you to bed either one <laughs> So those were the, the sleepy eyes of the Windsor Beauty series. Mm. And I like, no, people aren't super impressed, except the Yorks, by these <laughs> paintings. John Dryden, the poet and playwright, accused Lily of drawing many graceful pictures, but few were like, because he always studied himself more than those who sat to him. Which, yeah, I mean, they, they do have a definite, you could always tell that Lily painted one of these images and... They are somewhat interchangeable, although he does he does make some variations. The process of sitting for a portrait, Margaret Denham would have been booked in for an hour slot between 9 to 4pm, which was when the light was good enough to sketch by, although Lily was so busy and so popular that Peeps once had to be fitted in at 8am because he was just so fully booked. On arriving at the studio, Margaret Denham would have chosen a posture for herself from examples of sculptures portraits and sketches that Lily had dotted around the studio. The artist would then have made a quick sketch while sitting about six foot from her with the light falling over his left shoulder. Often only the subject's head was painted by Lily because he was just so so busy and the rest of the portrait was finished by his assistants. So copies for friends and admirers were traced through muslin and then he had a special assistant aside from the ones doing the copies and finishing the paintings who ground his colours for him. And the colours used are often these really gorgeous, deep saffrons, apricots, cinnamons, russets. It's quite autumnal, his colour mm. palette, I'd say. And you can really see all these colours in her image. She's wearing this beautiful, sort of lustrous, silk, saffrony gown. And coming over her shoulders behind her, there's this deep red, kind of cochineal falling curtain. Her gown is very low cut, off the shoulder, décolletage exposed. It only goes down to the elbow. Her hands are holding on her lap a basket of flowers. You can see roses, maybe a jasmine. Yeah, dark leaves and then behind her in the background there's sort of shady foliage and the background's really quite dark so that the focus of the portraits is really on her mm. she's almost kind of luminous yeah all the light is on her face on her skin on the glowing folds of her dress mm. 
And her expression has, she has a very long Roman nose, which was really fashionable at the time. Great eyebrows. Her eyebrows really, <laughs> really, <great>. really look <laughs> like threaded. <laughs> yeah. I mean, she's got the, the sleepy eyes. She's got the faintest hint of a double chin, which I think is very attractive. She's very round, but not. But I think that was part of the, the desired look at the exactly. restoration, wasn't it? It was very mm. voluptuous and yeah. slightly falling out of your gown. Was... Yeah, none of this size zero stuff. No. <laughs> She's got big pearl, you can see one big pearl earring and a big pearl necklace. Pearls were the most common jewellery for the English. Actually, foreigners commented on the English love for pearls. I think it's kind of a a sign of of trade. They were from the the Persian Gulf, they symbolised wealth. But, you know, they weren't as high grade as other jewels. And I think that's why the foreign visitors are commenting on it. Mm, yeah, these it's weird. Court English ladies are going around wearing pearls. Mm. Why aren't they wearing rubies or, mm. or diamonds? But I guess pearls can be a symbol of wealth. Did you know that 2,000 oyster shells need to be opened to find a single pearl? <laughs> it must be so disheartening being a diver, mustn't it? Oh. And you're like, 1,999th shell, and there's still no pearl. Yeah, I don't know. If, it's quite curious that pearls were so popular with the English elite women at this time because they're often a symbol of innocence and Mm. of purity in Mm. other contexts so is it an ironic pearl (laughs) obsession (laughs) i mean these (laughs) ladies yeah laughing about it they're so promiscuous that they can even they're even being ironic with their jewelry Mm. i like that the Mm. ironic pearl Mm. well and roses because she's holding a basket of flowers which look like jasmine roses and jasmine was were apparently a symbol of purity as well and roses were symbols of spring, but also of purity, mm. and the flower of the Virgin Mary. So it's very interesting that they're kind of... And there was a trend a bit later for court ladies being painted as saints. So it's this really interesting, slightly ironic association yeah. with purity. And, you know, people loved having a joke and a practical mm. joke. And maybe that is they're laughing at us from yeah. 300 years ago in these I, portraits. Yeah, I think that really does make me feel convinced by the, the idea of the ironic pearl because then you've also got yeah the ironic rose. Yeah, it's a bit of a theme. I think something that hits me from this portrait, besides the kind of luminosity of her skin and this knowing look, she's kind of looking directly at us, which I love because I think we get, we don't have mm. many, really any of her words and I think mm. we do get a sense of personality from her kind of looking at us very knowingly. But something that really hits me from this portrait is this saturation of colour. It's so intense and it's just displaying wealth and mm. luxury in the most palpable way. And Lily, with the dark red slash behind her is showing off trade connections. There's this new and exciting red dye that's coming all the way from Mexico so it's cochineal, as Romy said, which is a type of snail living on cactus in Mexico. Cacti, even. So cool. Yeah, that produces a red acid to deter predation. Amazing. <laughs> so it's a more potent, saturated colour that's ever been seen before. And it's where cardinals' robes and the British Army red coat dye comes from. And apparently it's still used in lipstick because it's not carcinogenic, like a lot of artificial dye. So the power of this tiny snail. The, the snail, yeah. Let's move on from the lipstick of today and get back to this Lily portrait and the restoration and the world that Margaret is moving in. Her sister, Frances, was also painted around the time of her marriage in 1665. And I think, again, a mark of these 
shining stars of Bristol's house that they both get their portraits painted as part of this series. And together, the sisters were strikingly beautiful. Frances's portrait, it's, no, the colours somehow feel a bit more muted to me when I'm looking at it. Her dress is more of a kind of silvery grey. Again, you have that, you know, bare arms, low off the shoulders, décolletage, the ironic pearl. (laughs) Yeah, she looks a bit more, less knowing and maybe a bit more relaxed than her sister. You get the feeling that Margaret Denham is the livelier one and Francis is along for the ride having a good time but they were very different personalities Francis settles down to a life of respectable marriage and as we'll see Margaret Denham does Does not not. (laughs) (laughs) yeah I think it's pretty safe to say that Margaret was the kind of the livelier the wittier one of the two and it might really have been her I think it really was her wit and the sort of the meeting of wits that attracted Margaret Denham to her husband Sir John Denham They married in 1665 when she was about 23. And the average age of marriage in the Restoration for Women was 25, which I think was quite surprising for people because they always think that in history, people are always child brides who are Mm. married off when you're eight. Um, I think that really only happens if you're the princess of a very powerful nation. Yeah, and your country desperately needs an heir. (laughs) And even then, often you you lived with your parents until you got a bit older. They they did the contract and like, our countries are going to be friends. Mm. But even if you were an elite woman like Margaret, your early 20s are the average age. And that is how old she was when she married John Denham. Yeah, who was considerably older. He Mm. was about... 50, or he was 50 even, so about 27 years older than his new wife. They say that you should marry someone who's half your age plus seven. So the lowest John Denham should apparently go, according to conventional wisdom today, is 32, not almost a decade younger than this at 23. But I mean, considering the age gap, Margaret Denham may have married him because he was influential. He had a lucrative court post as surveyor of the king's works which paid relatively well and gave access to kind of high society. Yeah, surveyor of the king's works is kind of like overseer of all the properties and gardens and stuff that, yeah. that, that the king owns. So really quite an important yeah. job. Yeah, and any building the king is going to do. And yeah, you I can think, pocket a lot from that building work as well. Yeah, I think it's kind of like head sort of architect developer more than kind of head gardener. Mm. But yeah, so important yeah. post. But he was wealthy, but not as wealthy as he could have been. And not as fabulously rich as many other courtiers, partly, well, in fact, mainly because (laughs) he kept gambling fortunes away, (laughs) including his father's and his first wife's. He wrote an ironic tract against gambling, (laughs) which he didn't subscribe to at all because he just carried on loving to game. So despite this age gap, it is kind of unlikely Mm. that Margaret Denham did make this marriage just for money or just for influence. Yeah. And I mean, as a beautiful, witty and well-connected woman, I'd be surprised if she hadn't had more eligible offers, to be honest. So maybe it was a love match or at least one based on a strong liking and attraction. And Sir John was accounted a great wit and poet at the time. The images we have of him show a rather soulful looking man with high cheekbones curling mop of dark hair which is probably a wig when we were looking at his picture a while ago Sophie Sophie immediately went oh great eyebrows (laughs) (laughs) so clearly John Denham had a lot to offer (laughs) 
they just thought how great their eyebrows were. Altogether, yeah, they just were like, we could produce children with fabulous eyebrows. (laughs) So yeah, I mean, from the images we have of him, he seems to have aged well. And considering their personalities, they could well have formed a meaningful relationship after an exchange or two of witty banter. (laughs) And they married in Westminster Abbey, which was where most of the court got married since it was so close to the Palace of Whitehall in Westminster. So it's not like only royal marriages at that time. And interestingly, I didn't realise this, but Westminster Abbey is called Westminster to distinguish it from Eastminster or St Paul's Cathedral over oh. on the east along the Strand. Wow. Yeah, I which, never knew that. Yeah, me neither. It was really fun. Also, I like this fact as well. It has royal peculiar status as it's owned by the ruling monarch rather than oh, the Church of England. Yeah. I really don't know what that means, but I just really like that royal makes peculiar. That so much sense now. I've never twigged that I before. guess that's why they all get married there yeah. and stuff like that. I mean, but Westminster Abbey must have also been a great place to get married, even without the kind of royal status, you know, grand cathedral setting, vast Gothic arches and marble floors. Mm, Amazing acoustics. Uh, Yeah. So Margaret and John Denham got married in Westminster Abbey. Their marriage service would probably have been very similar to any Church of England wedding that takes place in the UK today. Although one difference is that Rather than receiving piles of wedding presents, the happy couple often gave out gloves to their guests, celebrating the hand of friendship. (laughs) (laughs) I like the emphasis on the, in case you don't get it, the hand. (laughs) Yeah, and ribbons. Another thing is ribbons were often worn to celebrate the tying of the knot. Uh, I love their little puns. (laughs) And were sometimes given out to guests too. So, for example, Charles II's queen, Catherine of Braganza, wore a dress covered in ribbons for her wedding and snipped off tiny pieces so that all the guests could have a tiny memento of the day, which wow. I'm sure they treasured. I'm, I'm maybe used to wrap around the top of their condoms. <laughs> <laughs> is, it, is it good luck if you use... If it's from Catherine of Braganza's wedding dress, God, she would have hated that. I just think that sounds so stressful on your wedding. Imagine having people coming up to you all day, snipping bits off your dress. Yeah. Sounds awful. People carried knives around with them, didn't they? And sometimes housewives carried around scissors. Whatever her feelings towards Sir John were, Margaret Denham was ambitious and fashionable. And as we'd already mentioned, it was distinctly unfashionable to be in love with one's own husband, even if that match had been a harmonious meeting of witty minds. She continued her flirtations and her marriage actually rekindled the interest of her old admirer, James, Charles II's brother. Our favourite gossip, Hamilton, tells us that the Duke of York, that's James, had rather neglected her for some time before, but the circumstance of so unequal a match rekindled his ardour, and she, on her part, suffered him to entertain hopes of an approaching bliss, which a thousand considerations had opposed before her marriage. (laughs) It's so high-flown. (laughs) <laughs> a thousand considerations is approaching bliss. Margaret's really playing the game here, isn't she? Mm, very canny. As Romy just said, James was Charles II's brother. And since Charles had no legitimate children with his Portuguese wife, Catherine of Braganza, James was next in line to the throne. So he really is a powerful man. He was Lord High Admiral at the time when the Navy was particularly important. England flitting in and out of war with the Dutch. 
and attempting to become a bigger player on the international stage. And a mark of how important James was is the name of a little city you might have heard of (laughs) called New York. It was originally called New Amsterdam because the Dutch owned it. But when the British got hold of it, they renamed it after James's title, calling it New York. And he had power over the colony. And actually the whole area, I think at the time, was called Yorkshire. It was later changed. um, New York State. Yeah. So yeah, James is a really important person. And Margaret Denham wanted a place at court. Far from being her uncle Bristol's political pawn, mindly following his pro-Spanish directives, she would do anything that she could to advance her family's interests and gain the kind of power that James wielded. James, like his elder brother, was always with a different woman, but was less charming in his relationships with women than Charles and considerably less intelligent. Yeah, he was less intelligent than his brother. We can see from his portrait that he had the fashionably Roman nose. He does look quite like his elder brother. He had slightly bulging eyes, thick black eyebrows, and a mouth set in what could be either a smile or a sneer. I'm not really Mm. sure. It's kind of up to the viewer to decide. He looks quite like he's lived a quite a debauched life in yeah he's got the real rosy cheeks there and doesn't puffy he puffy eyes yeah very puffy uh, yeah. eyes but also with the roman nose i know it was their fashion but it just makes him look like he is just looking down his nose at you mm. out of the portrait mm. i think yeah and i think maybe that's deliberate it looks like mm. it's painted from a kind of a lower position so maybe we're supposed to be enjoying his majesty in this <laughs> but it's, it, he does look slightly Like, he's seen it all, he's done it all, and he's not very impressed. Mm. Hamilton, our favourite gossip, described James as the most unguarded ogler of his time. I think if we met him on the street today, we'd find him extremely unattractive and lecherous. And even at the time, his behaviour could be kind of unacceptable, but he was the future king, so no one complained too loudly. (laughs) James was particularly attracted to witty women unlike Charles, who always seems to have preferred beautiful yet vapid women. Mm, yeah. Yeah, Castlemaine was the only exception, really. But I think maybe he was scarred by that relationship <laughs> and afterwards always went for quite... Women with no nap spine. Mm, or, yeah. Know. So returning to the beginnings of their affair, James and Margaret Denham, immediately after her marriage, struck up a very public, sexually charged flirtation. And it was gossiped about even within the context of the very sexually charged Mm. restoration court as we've been seeing so perhaps it gave james an extra thrill knowing that she Mm. was married he seemed to have really turned his attention to her after her marriage margaret denham apparently loved the attention and potential access to power this gave her however she soon found that she had a rival for james's affections Yes, this rival was the lovely Elizabeth Stanhope, Countess Chesterfield. Hamilton says of her that the Countess was tempted by her evil genius to rob Margaret Denham of her conquest in order to disturb all the world. Just gives you an idea of how important these affairs were to the political Mm. (laughs) climate Mm. and nation at the time. Mm. Hamilton describes the Countess as one of the most agreeable women in the world. She had a most exquisite shape, though she was not very tall. Her expression was extremely fair, with all the expressive charms of a brunette. And she had large blue eyes, very tempting and alluring. 
Hermanus. You can't see, but Sophie and I are furiously making sleepy eyes at each other. Hermanus, so back to Countess Chesterfield. Her manners were engaging, her wit lively and amusing. But her heart, ever open to tender sentiments, was neither scrupulous in point of constancy, nor nice in point of sincerity. (laughs) So although this wasn't very unusual for Restoration courtiers, no one was constant or told the truth all the time. So despite all her blue-eyed brunette beauty, her engaging manners... The Countess was very self-conscious <laughs> of her ugly feet and short, thick legs. <sighs> so tragic. I shouldn't laugh. <laughs> it's just... And she wore green stockings to try and hide I them. I just, no, what was the thinking there? Were all carpets green so that no one's going to see your feet? I mean, you're also presumably wearing shoes. So Yeah, and maybe this is before the days when black is, you know, the slimming colour. It's like, let's experiment with green. <laughs> Margaret Dunham, of course, had beautiful feet. <laughs> of course. <laughs> and watched the flirtation between the ugly-footed Countess and James with increasing annoyance. Her chance for influence and status was being taken away from her by a woman with inferior feet. <laughs> the Countess's husband, Philip Stanhope, Earl of Chesterfield, was also watching with alarm, despite the fact that he had been a lover of oh, Castlemaine. Double standards. Exactly, and was not very constant to the marriage bed himself. Hamilton recalls that the Earl had a very agreeable face, a fine head of hair, an indifferent shape, and a worse air. He was not, however, deficient in wit. A long residence in Italy had made him ceremonious in his commerce with men and jealous in his connection with women. He had been much hated by the king because he had been much beloved by Lady Castlemaine. The Earl had married his wife without loving her, really. But seeing her with James, jealousy, back to Hamilton, jealousy like a malignant vapour now seized upon his brain. A thousand suspicions, blacker than ink, took possession of his imagination. Their flirtation, so James and the Countess Stanhope's flirtation was even more public than Margaret Denham's had been with James. They could only meet at dances, meaning that she was under the necessity of making the most extravagant advances in order to seduce him from his former connection. Margaret Denham was not at all pleased with this behaviour and took the liberty of railing against her rival with the greatest bitterness. In bad-mouthing the Countess all over town, Margaret Denham isn't really showing herself to be the most sympathetic figure here. Mm. But I think maybe it's partly why she's been so overlooked by history. Sometimes she doesn't come across in that history as being very nice. She has strong feelings and she wasn't very restrained about them. Yeah, and she doesn't fit into this kind of classic innocent victim who's been murdered for no reason. You know, she wasn't that into the sisterhood. Yeah. (laughs) Which isn't surprising, Mm. really, for a woman of her time. She felt the Countess had wronged her, but wasn't blaming James for getting so easily distracted. Mm. And it's true. It's like if one of the only ways women can get power in the system is through sleeping with men, if someone else is sleeping with the man you want to sleep with, you need to create some very anti-sisterhood culture, doesn't it? Mm. Climbing over each other to get to the top. And I think perhaps it's helpful to think of them a bit more like MPs than Mm. friends, just having a normal dinner party atmosphere, because actually they are competing for power. It is very political. That's always intertwined. And an MP sort of backstabbing another MP. 
mm. isn't necessarily that laudable but you I don't know I think maybe we can understand it a mm. bit more yeah and I mean Margaret sounds like she was quick to take advantage of any situation that came her way when the flirtatious couple went amazingly too far in public Margaret made the most of it yeah James was <laughs> fondling the countess and actually had his hand up her skirt while they were playing cards <laughs> do we think it's a peep situation where his wife walked in on him and the maid with his hand as he says in her cunny god Paul peeps his wife <laughs> I know <laughs> It seems that public kind of fingering and groping happened actually quite a bit. Catherine of Baganza wouldn't go into her own bedroom for fear that she would catch her husband, you know, groping or having sex with another woman. Peeps records masturbating in church. It's shocking, isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) It's just gross. (laughs) Yeah, we think of people as being so sexually repressed in the past, but actually we're the ones who are sexually repressed. (laughs) I mean... I'm. I think I'm happy that it's not okay. That it's okay not to masturbate in churches <laughs> or in other general public places. Mm. But yeah, it is quite eye-opening actually how free it all seems to have been. So this scene where James is fondling the Countess Hamilton describes it as no less public than the room where the Queen plays at cards, which, while Her Majesty was at play, was God knows pretty well crowded. <laughs> Lady Denham was the first who discovered what they thought would pass unperceived in the crowd. And you may well judge how secret she would keep such a circumstance. (laughs) So as soon as the Countess's husband, the Earl, entered the room, she told him that he should give his wife a little advice, as other people might take notice what I might see myself if I pleased. (laughs) Ooh, ooh, ooh. James James was supposed to be playing cards, but he actually had no cards in his hand. Instead, his hand was under the Countess's clothes. And when he saw the Earl standing behind him, James pulled his hand out of her skirt, almost undressing the lady. So something had, got, you know, whatever his hand was doing, it had gone pretty far to um, practically take her clothes off when he withdrew. Yeah. Fascinating. Margaret Denham immediately told this story all around town to blacken the Countess's reputation. Oh no, Countess, you were caught with the James's hands inside your dress while you were supposed to be playing cards. There's not much sisterhood here, but Margaret Denham was essentially undermining a political opponent with a smear campaign. Mm. And Margaret won, really. You know, initially the Countess had wrested James from Margaret and it was clearly, you know, highly competitive atmosphere. I think it's sort of the man that the woman was sleeping with didn't really matter. You know, they wanted the power and the prestige and they were working towards something bigger than just one person. Mm. Some courtiers thought nothing had happened between James and the Countess, or at least that such a minor incident, like, you know, fingering your lover in public, (laughs) uh, wasn't worth making a fuss over. But the Earl disagreed. The malignant vapour of jealousy was strong in him. He packed his Countess off to their country estate in the Peak District. The Earl said, I cannot find words to express what I now feel. I should not hesitate one moment what course to take if I might be allowed to show my resentment against the person who has wronged me. But of course, James being heir to the throne, the Earl couldn't call him out in a duel or just punch him. (laughs) If you accidentally killed the heir to the throne, it would really not be a good thing. No. So, yeah. And perhaps rather unsurprisingly, given who James was, it's the Earl who became known as the bad guy of this story. Hamilton tells us that 
very few approved of Lord Chesterfield's conduct. In England, they looked with astonishment upon a man who could be so uncivil as to be jealous of his wife. And in the city of London, it was a prodigy, till that time unknown, to see a husband have recourse to so violent means to prevent what jealousy fears and what it always deserves. They endeavoured, however, to excuse poor Lord Chesterfield as far as they could safely do it, without incurring the public odium, by laying all the blame on his bad education. This made all the mothers vow to God that none of their sons would ever set foot in Italy, lest they should bring back with them that infamous custom of laying restraint on their wives. Yeah, so this is very surprising that everyone turns against Lord Chesterfield, the Earl, for sending his wife to the Peak District. So let's put it into context with English attitudes at the time. The Earl had spent quite a long time in Italy, where public jealousy was more socially acceptable at the time. The English prided themselves on women being relatively free, and contemporary plays or poems often remark on the Mm. futility of trying to curb a wife's actions. The logic was that basically she's going to sleep around anyway, she'll just be more sneaky and resentful about it if you do things like send her to the Peak District or try and stop her. So the Earl became a laughing stock for his jealousy at court. And the proverb grew up, to send a man's wife to the devil's arse a peak when she vexes him, i.e. when your wife annoys you to send her to the Peak District. So neither, neither couple comes out very happy, basically, from this fair. So Margaret Denham has successfully removed her rival off to the north, never to be publicly fondled again by James. The field is clear for Margaret Denham to become one of the most powerful women in the country, if only she can get this relationship with James off the ground. Luckily, Charles II's mistress, the Countess Castlemaine, stepped in at this point to help things along. Castlemaine had recently had one of her many massive rows with Charles. Their relationship was very tempestuous and often ended up with him sort of on bended knee, begging for forgiveness. Castlemaine wanted to make up their affair after the last argument, but she didn't want to weaken her position by asking Charles for his forgiveness, of course. Instead, she wanted James to intercede for her with his brother, reminding Charles of how much he was missing out on. Castlemaine therefore helped promote James's affair with Margaret Denham. We're not quite sure how. It's possible that she gave them a place to meet since both were married and it would have been difficult to get privacy. Yeah, and most likely Margaret Denham and James's affair began in the spring of 1666 when she was 24 and he was 32. So a significantly smaller age gap than that between Margaret Denham and her husband, John Denham. Their notes were passed through the Viscount Henry Bruckner, who served as gentleman of the bedchamber to James. The two men were very close. Bruckner's official duties involved waiting on the Duke while he ate in private, helping him dress and even guarding the water closet. (laughs) So basically making sure that no one got too near to James while he pooed. (laughs) Yeah, I it's well, it was a highly competitive job. Like a lot of people wanted to do it for some reason. (laughs) I guess it was position of power. Yeah, you you have the ultimate access (laughs) to the heir to the throne. Bruckner was a famous chess player, but much disliked by everyone, almost everyone, except James and Margaret Denham. Pepys called him a pestilent rogue, an atheist. 
the worst insult at the time, being an atheist. While the other famous restoration diarist, John Evelyn, said that Bruckner was ever noted for a hard and covetous, vicious man. Yeah, he sounds like a bit of a nasty piece of work. Mm. But no matter how much help they had from him in getting to meet in private, James and Margaret soon became less discreet. James visited Margaret's house publicly and pursued her every time they met. By the spring of 1666, aged around 24, Margaret Denham had finally got what she wanted. By sleeping with James, she'd become one of the most influential women in the kingdom. We have to admire her tenacity. All this at only 24. Good. I mean, not saying we approve of cheating on your husband so blatantly, but... I don't really have a problem with it. Maybe, well, maybe some listeners do. I'm not sure Ether would like to hear that, Sophie. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, I'm I'm not going to, but I just think, I don't know, it's, you can never tell what's on the inside of someone's relationship, can you? And maybe she, maybe her husband was happy with it. I mean, maybe he expected that it was happening. And we do, we'd have to admire her tenacity. But this is where it all comes apart. She had only a very brief period of wielding this influence before tragedy struck. On the 10th of November, 1666, we hear from Pepys that Margaret Denham is exceeding sick, even to death. She was terrified, telling everyone she could get hold of that she had been poisoned through a cup of hot chocolate. She wanted James to find out who it was, and she did have a long and severe illness, pains in her stomach. She finally died on the 6th of January, 1667. But... Who hath done it? (laughs) Margaret Denham's dramatic death in 1667 almost started a riot, but her claim of being poisoned has largely been dismissed by history. We're going to take her claim seriously and investigate what might have happened. We have a total of five suspects, but we also want to discover what she might have been poisoned with and who could have had access to her hot chocolate. James's wife, Anne Hyde, Duchess of York, clearly had a motive as she herself was jealous of political power and her family had a long-standing feud with the Earl of Bristol and Margaret Denham's political faction at court. Public opinion at the time certainly pointed the finger of blame at Anne, even alleging that she was haunted by Margaret Denham's ghost. Next episode, we'll start our investigation on the trail of Anne Hyde in our attempt to discover who hath done it. thanks for listening to this week's episode if you enjoyed the show and you'd like to support the podcast head over and find us on patreon where you'll find extra content about this fascinating period in history early modern recipes making the podcast and much more don't forget to like and leave a review 